Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we talk with Anne Marie Madden, a Solomon sponsored trail runner based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Anne Marie punched her ticket to Western States this June after a third place finish at the Black Canyon 100K last weekend. In addition to race analysis, we talk about how she got into mountain ultra trail running, life in Vancouver, British Columbia, opportunities to grow our sport through better urban planning, social media in our sport, and much more. Let's get right into it. Welcome, Anne Marie. Anne Marie Madden. Welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we will go way in depth on this soon, but congrats on the golden ticket at the Black Canyon 100K this past weekend. Do you have any initial thoughts and feelings? Well, thank you. Mostly, I'm just super grateful and kind of enjoying the week of reminiscing and remembering and processing. So, um yeah, I'm sure we'll go through the, the race later, but overall I'm, I'm just pretty ecstatic and it, yeah, I couldn't have asked for more really. Very cool. Well, I was just scrolling through ultra sign up, like just before this call started and you have had this really long successful career, at least through the 2010s in the Pacific Northwest scene. And you've podiumed at some of the most important races in our sport. And so at least in my mind, this golden ticket at uh, black Canyon it doesn't surprise me at all. It probably doesn't surprise a lot of people in the community, but I don't know much about you beyond that. And I'm curious if we can just do a little bit on your background before the race analysis and yeah, how yeah. do you get into the sport of ultra running? So I would say it all began more with just trail running and not necessarily the ultra definition. So I'm sure I've mentioned it somewhere else in the past, but when I was 13 or 14, begged my parents for a dog. And finally we got a Husky from the SPCA and I just started running with her in the trails. And that just soon became my favorite thing to do. And I've roved through some other sports like triathlon along the way, but always came back to running and specifically trail running as my first love. And then beyond, I guess we define ultra marathon as anything longer than a marathon. So I don't think until 2013 or 2014, did I run more than a marathon? And that was, it would have been in Canada. It was a trail Stoke race in Revelstoke, which is a pretty stunning part of mm. BC. If ever you get the chance to visit, I highly recommend it. And that was our Canadian national championships that year. And it was, I think it was supposed to be more than a 50 K but we had really bad weather up on the ridge. So the day before they notified us that the course might have to be shortened. So it worked out to about 55, I think. And yeah, that was the beginning of ultra racing. And considering, you know, that probably was about 10 years or maybe a little short of 10 years ago, I've clearly taken my time to step it up to the hundred mile distance. You know, I maybe the opposite of most people who kind of progress pretty rapidly from 50 K 50 mile, hundred K hundred miles. I've been very gradual in my escalation of distance. <laughs> and it, was that calculated all along? Like, have you had this 10 to 15 year plan mapped out or were you just pursuing races that spoke to you and, and distance was irrelevant? Yeah, I think I'm very intuitive in terms of what I've, we're, 
I guess my choice of races are often serendipitous and just whatever feels right at the time. So by no means was this a calculated 10 year plan. And definitely had I raced a 50 miler that had a golden ticket and I won one five years ago, I probably would have gone, but that just never really materialized. But I probably am a sort of cautious person by nature in terms of gauging my own ability. So I'm uh, not someone that came into the sport with the full confidence that running a hundred miles would be super easy. And just because I have a reasonable half marathon PR, I could definitely just crush a hundred miles without any issues. So I've needed a bit of time to warm up to the idea. And also I think have benchmark tests of my capabilities to give me the confidence to, to go further. You mentioned this default cautiousness in life, which is fascinating. And I'm curious, you mentioned that also you've been trail running for a while now, dating back to childhood. What was the initial inspiration to get into the ultra scene? What inspired you to make that jump? I guess it's just the curiosity of what's possible and what you can do. And I love being outside and injure and pushing, pushing myself and being in that space on a good day when you're lucky and you enter that flow state where, you know, you're achieving a sense of floating through the trails. When you have one of those good days, you're like, why wouldn't I want to do this for longer? <laughs> and then you have a bad race and you think I'm never doing this again. And so it waxes and wanes, but despite being cautious, maybe I am always also at the same time striving for bigger challenges. So um, wanting to push out of my comfort zone, but in slow increments or something like that. <laughs> Which is interesting. Like you said, there's just so many people in our sport that have probably influenced generations of runners to graduate to these bigger distances in a very short amount of time. Like I know, for example, myself, I went to the hundred mile distance two years into the sport, definitely was not ready, but I had just looked to the people that, you know, inspired me in the first place. I'm like, well, they did that path. So I'm taking it too. So yeah, kudos to you on the ability to go at it in your own time frame and to cover everything else before in the lead up. Are you based in, is it Vancouver or which, which, yeah. where yeah. Vancouver? Okay. Yeah. I'm, so I'm, yeah, I'm Vancouver, also Canada, not Washington, Canada. just to specify. <laughs> There's two Vancouvers. (laughs) So a a lot of people have told me that Vancouver is the greatest city on earth for a lot of reasons, whether you're a skier, a trail runner, you're also by the ocean. What makes it a great place to to live and train? Is there a cool scene up there? Maybe talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably one of the only cities in Canada where I'd be excited to live because you can both be, you know, if you're into academia or you have a profession that requires you to be in a city, you can also escape to the trails in 20 minutes and be lost within another 30 minutes of climbing. So we're very lucky in that we have this proximity to nature. And as you said, both the ocean, mountains, alpine skiing, and because it's a temperate climate, we're near the ocean at low elevation throughout the year, you can pretty much always find some trail that's not covered in snow don't get me wrong. I've trained for both Tarawira and now this race, you know, that are both February races through our kind of winter and getting in the vert can be challenging. And without a doubt, you end up running through a lot of snow, but we have amazing geography and landscape. And then layered on top of that, 
I think this part of the world has attracted a lot of people that are willing to put up with the horrendous cost of living Mm. and the challenges that come with living in sort of one of these world-renowned cities because they prioritize access to nature, sports, and life outside of kind of work. So we have a great running community and especially like a trail community. And there's certain key figures out here. Many people will know Gary Robbins, Mm. but there's also like Solana Class. And there's a few excellent race directors that put on fantastic series. And through those, they, you know, grow a community of people that encourage each other, that share their knowledge. And they've also been really inclusive in their race distances. So almost any event you can go to, there'll be something from like a 13K to a 50 miler or, you know, not always that big of a spread, but there's usually multiple distances, which makes it accessible for people that want to start trail running and don't necessarily quite yet know if they can tackle a really long distance so they can get their feet wet with shorter distance races. And it also offers opportunities if I'm planning to go to an international or a U.S. race in two or three months time, I can still go to some of these local races and maybe it won't, you know, I'm not going to taper and I'll use that shorter race as like a tempo for the day and maybe add on some distance before and after, but you can stay connected with your community and the people and get an excellent kind of <laughs> workout and some competition. And yeah, it's, it's a really great place to live and train for sure. I'm based in Salt Lake City, Utah, so I can definitely appreciate your comments about access to the mountains, but Vancouver's got the body of water too. And, yeah. and we have the great Salt Lake, but you can't really recreate in it. So very cool. What do you do for work? I work in, in Vancouver as an anesthesiologist and about 80% of the cases I work on are, are cardiac. So cardiac surgery or in the cardiac surgery ICU. And one thing I'm curious about, given that you're definitely one of the better runners in our sport, how do you balance the work with your time training as a runner? Does either get in the way? <laughs> yeah, I get asked that a lot. So without a doubt, since I started medical school, And even in my undergrad, school and work has always had to be the priority. And especially now, like just the responsibility and the importance of what I do with my job, I have to have that take precedence. But now I'm starting to learn about how to carve out some time or um, I have to make like the knowledge and when I'm at work, 100% of my focus, but I don't necessarily have to work a hundred hour weeks all the time. So I'm trying to learn balancing some of the hours and we have quite a supportive department. I think everyone's trying to make sure that they can still see their families and achieve some sense of balance, which is always a a challenging concept, but on the day-to-day kind of basis, I am a morning person, but this job is also a morning person's job. So you start at seven in the morning at work. So to get your training in before seven, I get up pretty early and try to do it in the mornings most of the time for two reasons. One, at the end of the day, after standing on your legs for 12 or 14 hours, like they tend not to be super responsive or workouts don't go quite as well in the evening. And also our end times are not 
defined or clear cut. So it's not like I know I'm getting off work at 7 p.m. So, you know, the times that I have left it to the evening, you're there at seven and you realize, oh, we're still going to be here till eight. Oh, it's nine, it's 9.30, it's 10. Okay, I'm just going to go home and go to bed when we're done. So I find it's more reliable to get it done in the mornings. Is Solomon your sponsor? Uh, yeah, Solomon, I guess they're North American. I used to say Canada, but I think we've merged a bit. So yeah, Solomon, Canada or Solomon, North America. One thing I'm curious about, again, given that you're one of the better runners in our sport, have you ever had to face the, the decision to choose between running and your job in medicine? Has a brand like Solomon ever said, we would love to just give you the opportunity to run full time. We'll give you a salary that, that makes it so that you can leave whatever other work you're doing and you can focus on this full time. Has that ever been an option for you? And would you consider it? I've never been explicitly told that. And I've certainly never asked. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not totally sure that I would. It's, I've seen it time again, like I'm very grateful for the balance I have. And I feel so lucky to feel like I am able to run and work. And there's a certain element of it takes the pressure off a little bit when it's like, if I do badly at a race on Saturday, I fly home on Sunday by Monday, I'm just taking care of patients and no one really cares or worries about it. And you're just too busy to get too hung up on how something went poorly. Yeah. And, and I know that a lot of the professional athletes, like it's a lot of pressure and yeah. if things aren't going well, or you get an injury, there's certainly a huge sense of searching for purpose. So, um, I'd be lying if I didn't say that sometimes I dream about what my life would be like if all I was doing with most of my day was training or recovering or doing the kind of extra stuff that you should be doing outside of just running. But I've certainly never been brave enough to kind of <laughs> pull the trigger, or ask to take a sabbatical or do anything like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, it's a question that I ask almost every guest that comes on the show because and I'm sure you have similar thoughts when it comes to thinking about medicine and bringing it into sports and running. I have a business background and I really can't stop thinking about it even when I'm in the running world. And so I'm always curious about ways that people could make it in the sport if that's what they wanted to do. So that's cool. Maybe we can talk about Black Canyon now. Was sure. First of all, I'm curious what drew you to the Black Canyon 100, given that there's a whole list of other golden ticket races that you could have signed up for. So. Well, with, with like kind of my work and the department we work in just to make all people's vacation requests fit into this massive spreadsheet, more than a year out, we're picking our holiday for the following kind of year, year and a half. So at the time I was actually, I took that weekend and a few days proceeding off with the idea that I would go back to New Zealand and run Tarawira. And for the second time, and my husband Hamish has a lot of extended family there. So we do like to go visit New Zealand. And of course, with COVID and everything, it became fairly clear last fall that New Zealand was not going to be open for travel. And at that time, I knew Terry Weir was definitely a golden ticket race. And so it just magically worked out that Black Canyons happened to be on the same weekend and had golden tickets. So that was perfect because I didn't have to change any of my time off. And I also, it would have been like the same weekend in terms of your training and your lead up and your taper 
but even then Omicron arrived. So yeah. I was training for it, but I hadn't registered or bought flights or sorted out places to stay or made any of the arrangements till maybe two weeks before. <laughs> so that's kind of how that came about. And one other thing I will say was that although I definitely wanted a golden ticket, I made sure I looked at the race and thought to myself, if this wasn't a golden ticket race, or if you show up and there's just a phenomenal field of women and you don't get a ticket, is this hundred kilometers, a hundred kilometer course that you're excited to run, that you want to experience and that you want to see. And 100%, it just looked beautiful. And the landscape was amazing and such a stark contrast to where I live right now and then training through the winter. So there was just so much about it that pulled me there and it all, it just all seemed right. And all these pieces started falling into place. And then we found out Terry was canceled and we even got that an extra ticket was brought to black canyons. And it was just like, okay, this is meant to be. <laughs> Still though, the flexibility of your situation, I think makes this golden ticket even more impressive. And I'm curious because I'm not as familiar with the Tarawera course. Is that course similar at all in terms of like elevation profile, course profile to Black Canyon? And was the training that you did in the lead up to this sufficient to be successful at Black Canyon? Yeah. I mean, having run both now, obviously I'd only run Tarawira when I was doing the training. There's more, it felt like there's more climbing at Tarawira and that's not a it's not really a point to point. Maybe it, it sort of is a point to point, but in terms of the elevation profile, you're not experiencing that net elevation loss that we have at Black Canyon. But essentially for me, the net downhill, I think I felt ready for that. And both of them would have been the same temperature. And to be honest, it was the weather that was the biggest kind of, I don't know if you want to call it concern or the, the biggest challenge in my mind, and they were going to be fairly similar, maybe the same temperature, although Tarawira would have been far more humid. Okay. Wow. Um, and I think you mentioned it already, but going in the golden ticket was the objective and you decided that this was the year that you'd go for Western States and you'd test out that hundred mile distance. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I've been thinking about it for two or three years, but with kind of the way COVID worked out, it just mm. wasn't really possible. I'd I mean, I put my name in the lottery, but never got drawn. So yeah, it, it became apparent if I'm going to go, it'll have to be through a golden ticket means. Let's talk about execution a bit. I'm curious to get some insight on what the race itself looked like. Uh, did you have a particular strategy going in? Were you attempting to, for example, lead from start to finish, or were you expecting to go out slower and pick off people in the second half? It was the kind of plan was just to go out at whatever pace just seemed right for my legs. And if that meant what I was in the first place, I would have been a little bit weirded out by it, but I think I would have still just run at whatever seemed right. But I knew that it'd be very unlikely that what felt good and sustainable for me would land you in the top position because there's always someone that's very excited to go out, uh, fast and yeah it ended up being Dominica who I I didn't know until last weekend yeah. who went out quite fast and then Addie was second and then 
there was a huge group of us. And I want to say like third through 10th were within five seconds of each other. So your placing didn't really matter so much within that large group of people because we were all so close, essentially. But it felt reassuring that it it was definitely, in my mind, a sustainable pace. I was feeling very good. And I was just very grateful. Every race you start in the first few kilometers, or at least I am, I'm doing this like body scan, like, hey, how does it? How are the feet achy today or not? Or how do the quads feel? Or how does the energy feel? How's my stomach doing? And as I was sort of like scanning myself and running and getting a feel and looking at my watch and going like, what, what actual pace does, is this generating this amount of effort? I was like, I think this will be a good day. Or like, you know, that certainly that there's nothing coming out the gates that seems to be going wrong. Whereas I'd say my last couple races, neither felt especially good. So this was a stark change for how it felt starting out. I was very grateful for that. I'm curious there is is how you feel in those first few miles, typically a good forecast for how the race is going to end up, or have you had races in the past where you've done that scan, things aren't feeling great, but you've still managed to overcome it and put together a result that you're satisfied with? Yeah, I have had races where I've overcome it. Um, Probably the only one that I haven't is if my stomach feels really off from the get-go, I rarely ever recovered from that. But I'm trying to think, yeah, most of the time, it is a fairly good predictor of how how things will go. It's not very Mm -hmm. often I feel quite bad and then things loosen up. The only the only time I can think where I felt like absolutely terrible was way too cool 2019. And I just, I had an, I have an old neck injury that 90% of the time I don't even feel it whatsoever. And every once in a while it just locks up. And at the start of the race, I was like completely immobile up through my thoracic and cervical spine. And it was horribly painful for the first half of the race. And then things just settled out. And I think I was in eighth or something and then climbed through the field to finish in third. And that was probably the only race where I thought I might drop out of this at 5k and then felt very happy with how it went overall. Are you someone that likes to share a lot of miles and share energy with other runners throughout the race? Or do you like to be in your own head and yeah, running your own race from start to finish? I very much enjoy running with other people at times, but I won't change my pace to make it happen. So if my pace is, is means that I'm in the middle of a group of people, then that's great because I do feel like it's a nice distractor and time passes faster and it's enjoyable to share. But if everyone picks it up and it just doesn't seem like that's right for me, then I just, I will happily let people go. It really doesn't stress me out in the moment, which is maybe like, I sometimes hear people, I will say more likely men talking about how you'll like never want to fall off the back of the pack. Or if you do that, you'll never catch up. And, and so maybe it's my lack of formal track background or stuff where there's a lot of maybe (laughs) importance to how you position yourself in packs and it really makes a difference, but I never had that background. So it never really got drilled into me that be super calculated about your positioning. Especially I'm curious in the second half of the race, were you always in one of those top three to five spots or, or were you working off of the back of the pack 
Mostly I'm just curious, um, you know, was it, were you always in a golden ticket position from start to finish? I guess not at the start because there were probably times where how I crossed the timing mat would have been like ninth or 10th, but yeah. we were all clustered together. And then, sorry, I think in kilometers, but I know Black Canyon City was would be 60K and probably around 50 kilometers. We went through an aid station, a group of us, four of us, and we'd already dropped two or three people from the pack on, on a climb and just going through the aid station, it's fragmented. Claire went out first and then yeah. I think Addie and then me, and I must've passed Addie. But by the time I got into Black Canyon City and I knew that I was a couple minutes behind Claire, I had no idea how far behind Dominica I was. And I only knew once I was then leaving, I could see that maybe it was like two, four, six, ten, like every couple minutes behind me, there was probably another female. But at that stage, I was like, oh, I guess I'm third. So at the time, I didn't know Claire wouldn't take a, her ticket. So in my mind, I had the last golden ticket spot from Black Canyon City to the finish. One other question, because you mentioned something interesting a minute ago, and that is, you know, if you're in a group, that's great, but you're not going to conform to the pace to stay with it. You're going to continue to run your own race. Uh, I'm curious, given that you had this objective going in to secure a golden ticket, how did you cope with that pressure throughout the race? Were you thinking, well, I'm going to run my own race and if it happens to fall on my lap, great. But, or were you thinking like, I have this objective and I'm going to take some risks at various points in the race to hopefully put myself in the best, best position as possible. Because it's interesting to uh, me that you're very self-assured in, in your pacing and, and how you feel from start to finish. And a lot of people will get caught up in like the theatrics of the race and want to follow people that they think are going to do something similar. Well, I guess it, it just worked out that I didn't have to stress out about it, <laughs> but it could have been different. I felt like until 60K, any major risks are probably just going to land me in a world of hurt or trouble later on. Mm. And even races where I've paced very comfortably, like uh, in 2019, I did North Face, the 50 miler and ended up finishing second only because I passed Addie Bracey in the last five miles. But I was running at what I thought was perfectly sustainable pace. And then coming up from your beach, all my quads like every body below every, sorry, every muscle in my lower body seized all at once. And I was sort of just stuck standing there, trying not to fall over for maybe 30 or 45 seconds. And I thought to myself like, oh man, this might be the end of my race. Like I might just get stuck here. And at the time I was in third of feeling good. And so I think I'm very aware that taking risks can like, in, a, in an instant, your whole race can completely fall apart if you take too many risks, or at least me personally, because my stomach will go or my muscles will just seize and prevent me from moving forward. So um, I guess I was like, I was in third. And when I was at the turnaround, I sort of, every time I look back, there was no one and I was catching some men. So I sort of thought, this feels sustainable. I'm going to keep going. If I turn around and I see there's a female catching up to me. Like I will say I, I had another gear that I could have accessed, but I know that pushing it would have come at the risk of starting to throw up overheating for sure, or having like really bad muscle cramping. So I decided to stay under that line as long as I was still in third, 
but willing to take the risk if at 85 kilometers there was now a woman a minute back I sort of been like well you're gonna have to take the risk at this stage because you know you're close to the finish and if you don't take it for sure they've obviously started to catch up to you so um but I wouldn't have been really willing to take many risks till the last 20k or something like that very cool well Let's talk maybe about the finish of the race. You obviously secured the golden ticket to Western States. You're going to be heading there in June. It is going to be your first hundred miler. I know we're only four or five days removed, but are you starting to think about what training will look like and what you may do to put yourself in a position to be successful there? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I need to make sure that I'm, I recover well from this race. You know, I didn't. Squamish 50 in October Mm. and then on a whim ran a marathon in December and kind of then ran this. So I usually would take December as my like break, but because of COVID and because I didn't really feel like I'd raced for much of a year till the fall, things are in a different pattern right now. And then I think for me personally, I'm going to have to do as much as possible to get prepared for the heat. So probably a ton of layering, (laughs) maybe some sauna and then, yeah, working on just like conditioning the quads and making sure that they can sustain a hundred kilometers of running or a hundred miles. Do you have any competitive expectations for the race or goals? No, I feel like, like top twenties, the new top 10, it's going to be unbelievably deep. And so like, obviously I'd be completely lying if I didn't like sometimes daydream on a long run about being on the podium or doing well at Western States, but all that has to start with just running a smart race for your capabilities on the day and executing well. And then wherever your best race lands you in the rest of the women's field, that just, it is what it is. Right. So you do the best preparation you can and then run a smart race. And I think the rest is out of your control, I guess, in my mind anyway. What is exciting you most about our sport as a whole right now? Like as a fan of the sport, what, what's really getting you stoked these days? Well, I would say two things. One would be the, I feel like we have made a lot of progress and thanks to a lot of champions with prominent voices and platforms out there in terms of making female participation more prominent Mm. and then I think layering on top of that we've also come to the recognition that it's not a very diverse sport in terms of not just gender but also in terms of economic background and um, numerous other factors that kind of allow people to find our sport the I'd say problem there is we've become also a more professional sport which is wonderful in terms of exposure and like a lot of people like yourself we have such a wonderful host of podcasts and there's more exposure for bigger races but I worry that that comes at the cost of the consumer in terms of we want our sport to be more inclusive but it's also becoming more professional which somehow equates to being more expensive so in certain ways we're making huge gains and then in other ways though cognitively we want to make it more inclusive and also more accessible and more prominent 
but then certain factors there are making it less accessible. If that, I don't know if that makes sense, but that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I think about this a lot too, because those are two major goals in my own life as well. And one thing I think about, especially on the diversity front is how much of a problem is it due to the fact that like a lot of these trail running towns like Salt Lake City and Flagstaff and Boulder, if I look at the demographics of those places, they're predominantly white, for example. And how do we bring this sport beyond just those towns and cities, for example, to, to get more folks in? Yeah, it's really challenging because a lot of our a lot of our major cities have no access to good trail networks or mm. they don't allow people to get to trails unless what they own a car they have days off a week like to work and then get enough time to go drive hours to you know <laughs> the nearest trail network or mountain and so you start to think about those and you're now excluding people who can't afford a vehicle can't afford gas have to take care of their children have to work two jobs and get no days off. So as a sport, usually just running is one of the easiest, you know, you can put your runners on and run from your front door, but then trail running is different because you need access to trails. And part of that, perhaps we could normalize the idea that you don't have to run seven days a week on trails. Like you can do a lot of preparation for the sport in an urban environment. Yes. And even prior to me having, I now have a, a dog. So, and I try and maximize my running kilometers as much with him. So he gets to do as much of the volume I'm doing. So I do try to go to the trails, you know, at like five in the morning near our house but before we had him, most of my weekday running was all commuting to work, which was mostly pavement. And I, you know, maximized the hours of my day, but by having no driving or public transport commute and just using my running as a way to get to work and do like extra loops or a workout. But you ideally, if you're going to do a race with a whole lot of vert, it'd be good if one or two of the days of the week, you do find a way to get out there and, and, you know, seizing your quads. But I know that I've heard people not because of an economic disparity that are talking about training yeah. for a race with a larger vert, but just because they don't live somewhere with it. I know there's people who talk about finding overpasses or stairwells or, you know, like get creative. But I think, I mean, we veered away a little bit there, but I think there's, there's both giving people the tools to train for trail running when they don't necessarily have easy access to it. And then also maybe we need to do more things like, you know, you look at people, Max King with his camps or Dakota Jones and the footprints running, like they're finding ways to open up doors for youth that might never have even known about this or have the means to, to start running. And if you, take someone and, and show them how amazing it is. And then they go back to their community and even influence one other person or two, like it kind of, you know, there's a ripple effect from each person that we teach about this sport. I love everything you said there. And especially what you said about normalizing non-trail running training to bring more folks in, like to show that it's not necessarily a barrier if you're not within an hour of the mountains. I, I mentioned, I live in Salt Lake city and I have a ton of friends who it would say that, you know, if you're not doing the most aesthetic verdi mountain runs, are you really a trail runner? But 
this is one of the ways we can get more folks in. And I also wish we had my brother on the call because he's like an urban planning enthusiast. And <laughs> yeah. I had all these thoughts go through my head of reimagining travel through cities and suburbs. Like you could encourage more participants and fixing bike paths and sidewalks and totally. trail systems and totally. getting rid of highways and all this stuff. And anyways, you just made me think about a ton of different cool yeah. stuff. And no, it, right. it's funny you said that. Cause I thought the same thing. If, you know, if we're more careful about how we build our cities, there should be more opportunity to access nature within the city and not just assume that the city is going to be a concrete, a concrete circle with a radius. And it's not until you're 20 kilometers out of it that you get to see nature. We need to find ways to yeah bring it through our cities and other things too. I've, I think cycling to work has become at least in Vancouver, something that our city is striving to make more safe and possible having bike lanes where people feel they're protected from car traffic. And for those people who are worried about, you know, right, riding in the dark in the rain there, they have safer routes to get to work, but also each workplace, in my opinion, should be having full change rooms, lockers, showers, and just making a piece of cake for your employees to walk into the building and however they got there or whatever they did on the way if they're covered in sweat they have somewhere to get clean dry and ready for work in 10 minutes and not have to join a really expensive gym next to the building just so that they have access to showers or somewhere to store their stuff so you know there's a lot within our whole culture we could be doing to just make this is just making people more active in general, whether not necessarily trail running, but I think any form of movement is, uh, it's just so good for the body and the soul. I had no idea we were going to talk about urban design, but this has gotten me like so <laughs> stoked. My brother gave me this book. It's called a happy city transforming our lives through urban design by Charles Montgomery. It's fantastic. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I have not. Okay, and then thank you. there's another book, uh, which I've referenced on the pod before. It's called A Philosophy of Regional Planning by Benton Mackay, who's the creator of the Appalachian Trail. And, oh, wow. And he had this whole idea that like all of this city building was going to, people were going to recognize it as like a net bad and they'd go off into the wilderness. And he wanted to basically use the AT as this like spiritual center for all of society. Anyways, two good books that I highly recommend, but thanks for bringing this up because I think it's cool. And it has a huge connection to our sport. Yeah. And as probably a lot of the people who love our sport do live in cities. So if each one of us kind of rattles the cage <laughs> and demands for some of these things from our cities, our employers, then hopefully we can make a change. Is there anything you used to believe strongly, whether it was in the trail running world, ultra running world, or outside of it that you have recently changed your mind about in the last couple of years? And if so, why? Oh, um, when I think about it now, the, a certain theme that like this year I've come around to, which I'm not a huge new year's resolution person, but there are certain things that we work very hard at that are, you know, it's a challenge, but you want to do it and you want to go through the hardship of training or learning a new skill, art, sport, whatever it is. And I've decided that when I look at sort of my life and where I'm going to put my energy, there's certain things that I felt 
this ever present guilt for not doing well or not choosing to put my time in one would be Mm. music like since I was a kid I've always wanted to be an amazing pianist Mm. and it's like even in during COVID I you know I got a I borrowed a piano uh, electric piano from a friend and was like practicing again and all this stuff and I just realized I don't think there are certain things that I will put my energy into and I think I can achieve that the, the dream or whatever it is and then there's other ones where it was like despite me really wanting this end goal. I really didn't like the process of learning. And I got so frustrated with not being good at it that I've only now just decided you're allowed to not, not, it's not not excel, but you're allowed to pick and choose where you want to suffer or not. (laughs) And we only have so much time. And so I just let go of that dream a little bit. It was like, it's okay that you're just never any good at piano you can still listen to it and appreciate it but you you can only put so much like sweat and blood into so many things because if you spread yourself too thin nothing's really going to come to fruition in any of those so I've given myself permission to just either be bad or stop trying at certain things and just that's okay that's a great answer okay next question I'm going to ask for a prediction here what is one thing that you think will be drastically different about our sport by 2030? Oh, this might be a sad thing. I worry that our natural environment is going to potentially continue to decay and feel the effects of human development. And I hope that's not the case. I hope climate change doesn't continue to escalate but I do I do worry I do look into the future and question whether where we are now is going to be drastically different than what it looks like to be on this planet in 30 years and hopefully that's not the case but it's certainly a a concern and just to put that into event terms for example does that mean like a race like western states might not exist because that area of the country is like constantly on fire yeah exactly that type of thing yeah so you've been in the sport for about a decade now what's the biggest difference between the sport today versus our sport 10 years ago i think it's a lot less grassroots and and maybe that's not the case it's just that where i'm racing i've been picking more major events perhaps that's a difference in just where I'm racing, mm. but it feels more professional, more organized. And the whole world of social media has changed the landscape of athletes, professional athletes in terms of their accessibility and their visibility, both in good ways and bad ways. I think 10, 15 years ago, you had to put a lot of effort, like people would have to make their blog and they'd have to update it. And if you were really interested in a certain athlete, how their race was doing, you'd have to refresh their blog and see if they'd posted about their most recent big event. Whereas now everything is so instantaneous. We've got live stream, we've got certain things like Instagram or Strava. It's very little effort for you. There's very little barriers to just uploading that or taking Mm. a photo and putting a quick comment. And so in some ways that's great because I think it means more people can share their message and more people can find someone they identify with and that they want to be inspired by. But it also makes for a lot of noise too. 
And I personally am always constantly trying to cap how much time I spend on social media, not because I don't want to know about how other people are doing or what have you, but I have to be careful to not spend too much time just staring at the screen, rather be more present in the environment that you're in. I'm so glad you brought that up because I just, I follow Claire Gallagher, like her website, and she has a great blog and she just had a post about basically exiting social media. Like she's deleted. Oh, really? She's, I mean, she's, she's kept it, but she's deleted all the posts on her Instagram and she's no longer checking in on it. And for various reasons, and it's definitely had a a long-term effect on my thinking because I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now, like even just earlier today, I was like fantasizing about turning in my smartphone for a flip phone that didn't have any texting ability because I think social media is a net good, but it has destroyed the quality of my attention. I can't do anything for more than like 30 minutes now without checking that and getting that dopamine hit. So I'm currently pessimistic. I've usually been a social media optimist, but I'm currently feeling pessimistic. Yeah. I mean, I think having spent a lot of my life studying far too much of my life studying, as you know, that act of reading a textbook and staying engaged and staying focused is like, it's hard work. It's really, really hard work. And I often hear people say like, oh, and I said it myself, like, oh, I have a bad memory because I have to read things five times or I get so distracted easily. And I've come to realize like, no, that's 90% of humans. Like almost all of us are easily distractible. And for us to learn, we need a lot of repetition. And I do not know how our youth are getting through elementary school and high school and university with smartphone. Like, I don't, I agree. I don't know how, I don't know how I concentrated for all those hours and tuned it out. And it was only till about two or three years ago that I was still studying for cardiac exams or whatever. I'd have to sometimes just take my phone put it in an entirely different room. And I have all notifications except for phone calls and texts muted on my phone. So Mm. if someone like none of my other apps, well, maybe my calendar, but other than that, I get zero notifications. And even just that the beast of the phone, like calls to you sometimes, you know, and it's like, (laughs) it's very dangerous. And yeah, sometimes you think you need like, you need a safe to lock it in or, and I, we, you know, we don't have kids, but I often think like, how would I navigate this? If I had a kid right now and you're trying to explain to them how to study and how to not just pick up the phone. And, and I find myself doing it like at work, I'm walking up, I don't know, to the cafeteria to get food. And I'm in the stairwell and I just, without even knowing it, will like pull my phone out and just, I don't know, open an app. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like walking. I shouldn't be, I'm going to like bang into someone and, you know, got my head down and stuff to say like, no, put it away. It just becomes this reflex. And yeah, I think it's a dangerous thing. It's hard to curb the impulse to just pull it out and check or look or what have you. The the scariest thing in my mind is when you do break free from it for a second, like in public, like I was in the grocery store last night and I looked up, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to like observe and just be present in the moment. And I looked up and I looked around me and everybody standing in line was checking their phones. And I felt like I was in like a totally different world. It was scary. Um, It is really scary. It is. And one of my, one of the things that happened with COVID too, is say you go to a restaurant and that was one place where I felt like if I was at a dinner with someone, unless I was on call and had to have my phone or something, it was very like, you don't take your phone out. Like you sit with whoever you're with and enjoy the conversation and really connect. But now 
to even read the menu. Like everyone has to use the QR code and open the menu on your phone. So despite your best efforts, you're still sitting at this table with people that you really just want to connect with and everyone's got their head down on their phone and there's no other option. So I think it's going to take a lot of conscious effort for us to back ourselves out of this corner, this reliance on phones and apps to get through our daily life and to bring that all back down to discrimination. You look at our geriatric population and they're trying to do anything, get their vaccination and people are like, oh, so just get the app, upload your vaccination card. And it's like, this person doesn't own a smartphone. And certainly as we all age, sure, we're going to grown up in the era of always having these types of things. And so it's normal, but it's very difficult. If you tried to go through a day or a week in our world with no smartphone, your opportunities to access help, information, very important basic needs is completely impaired. And how much does a smartphone cost? Like a thousand dollars now, I don't know. Plus a subscription to your Wi-Fi or 3G. And then, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's a problem. I think this is actually a really good conversation to have. The last thing I'll say just from my perspective is there's this expectation now that you have to respond to things on social media and via text within some crazy time span, like two to six hours. And I'm just like, that's, that's not right. Like I get penalized if I don't respond to a text in three hours or an email in 12 hours. And it's just like, how do you get work done? If you have that expectation, how do you get any quality? I know. So I, I appreciated that thread. Two more questions. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's good. No, it's, I think it's an issue affecting runners just as much as anybody. And that's what's cool about running is you can escape. Uh, last two questions here. I've really enjoyed this conversation. What is a recent book, movie, or podcast you've consumed that has had a pretty big impact on you, like changed the way you think or see the world and why? I can think of two books that I've re- read. One maybe changed the way I think and the other completely reinforced the way I think. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure if you, you know, but I'm, tragically in Canada, um, a major issue on all of our minds has been the residential schools that in 20, you know, in the last year, we continue to find unmarked graves at residential schools where a lot of um, the at the time were called Indians, but the Indian residential school was forced upon a lot of our indigenous population. And in 2020, a Canadian writer wrote Five Little Indians. The author is Michelle Good, and she's a Cree Canadian. And it's it's a very short read. I'm not yeah. going to say, I mean, it's an easy read in terms of the text, but you should yeah. be prepared to be crying. Yeah. Yeah. But it follows five Indians in their life after boarding school. And I would recommend everyone read that. I think, I mean, it probably reaffirmed some of the things that we've been hearing about, what was just a reminder of how horrific it was and how it can going through that impacts, not just that generation, but generations to come. So that's, that's an excellent book. I would recommend obviously every Canadian read, but probably even people from any other country. And then another book that was just handed to me at Christmas, one of my family members found it in one of those fantastic libraries that you're walking along the street and there's like a little wooden door with a a bunch of books in it. 
and it was where the crawdads sing, which is actually set in North Carolina, somewhere I've never been in my life. But there is a young girl who's abandoned by her family and she lives in a marsh and her proximity to nature and living with it and studying it and becoming just a student of the land around her and the animals and and I absolutely loved the book and it made me realize that female biologist main characters are one of my favorite books to read apparently (laughs) I was actually talking to Claire about this during during the first half of Black Canyons because I think she's going back to school for her marine biology kind of career but I would also highly recommend that book very cool if you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? No, this one's hard. Maybe find nature, which is not necessarily, we've talked about that's easier for some than others. And depending, yeah, depending on your background, that, that might not be easy. But I think as trail runners, we ideally move through nature a lot. But I think if we get too serious about it, you know, you could be about your pace time or the workout that you're doing on this hill and fail to really soak up the amazing place that you're in. So, I mean, I won't, I won't lie. Sometimes I'm out in nature and I'm doing something very purposeful and a bit more focused on like my physical effort. But most of the time I'm trying to just really appreciate where I am and feel grateful for the fact I can be on this single track or this mountainside or crossing this river or just like under these beautiful trees and I think you get this sense of calm and gratitude when you really just let yourself just be in in nature and realize how beautiful it is that's awesome and before we exit here to bring back in the urban planning discussion there's a really cool twitter account I follow that shows these photos of nature in like record time, taking back over these human engineered built environments. And so we do have hope that uh, if we decide to change as a society, that we can bring nature back to New York city and San Francisco and all these major Metro areas. Yeah. I've heard people say that no matter what nature is going to, we might be gone, but yes, but uh, she'll survive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hey, it's been great to meet. I've loved every element of this conversation. For folks that want to follow your journey to Western states, whether it's over social media or yeah, like Strava, Instagram, what's the best way to get in touch to follow? Yeah, so I try to limit myself to Instagram. I think it's am.madden, M-A-D-D-E-N um, is the handle. Okay. While I do use Strava, I don't actually post publicly to it at the moment. That one's a, a internal debate. I'm not sure if I've considered whether I should open it up on my lead up to Western States or not, but I just enjoy being able to do my own thing without feeling like I have to worry about what anyone else is, you know, thinking about my time outside. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'll do there, but definitely Instagram would be the one. And for the record, this is another tangent. I'm going to go on. Sorry. Go go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm pretty sure like just literally because of the cap of time I have from work, I would not say I'm a high volume trainer. And I think Claire often describes herself as not being a huge volume athlete either. So 
people out there don't have to feel that the only way to get a golden ticket or run ultra marathons is by running a hundred plus miles a week. You can with less. <laughs> Amen. I, as someone who also exists in that camp, I strongly second or third that. That's awesome. This has been great. Hopefully we can have you on again at some point in the future because I really enjoyed this conversation and felt like we could have had a ton more threads to go down. So thank you. Winding roads. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks as always for listening to the show. We covered a couple of brand new threads in that conversation with Anne-Marie that I do think are worth emphasizing here in the outro. The first, Anne-Marie's point that we can grow the sport by expanding the definition of trail running and rebuilding urban areas to be more hospitable to our sport. And the second, our relationship with social media and more broadly our phones. I know this has been talked about in other areas of life and probably on other podcasts, but it's good to ask ourselves whether those relationships with our phones and with social media are undermining the time we dedicate each day or that we intend to dedicate each day to focus uninterrupted on the work or the hobbies that we care the most about. And I do think that this relates strongly back to the quality of our running experiences and our performances at events, everything. Anyways, I hope that the second half of that episode in particular gave you a lot of food for thought. And yeah, until next time, I am your host, Finn Melanson, and this is the Single Track Podcast.